The question is whether or not we're going to choose victory, whether or not we're going to walk in victory, whether or not we're going to be slaves to sin and to the enemy and to this world, or are we going to walk in victory, Lord? So this morning, we choose. We choose to walk in victory. We choose to say no to our flesh. We choose to say no to what this world would call us to. And we say, you have something better for us. You have something better for us. And we want to step into it today. And Lord, we already bring to our remembrance, there are men and women that have already been brought to our heart and mind. There are family members right now, Lord, that are coming to our heart and mind that we want to see that victory just like we've experienced it. We want to see them free from bondage. We want to see them free from alcohol. We want to see them free from marital problems, Lord, and anxiety and fear. We want to see them free from drug addiction. We want to see them free from depression. So, Lord, we just begin the process of you inviting that victory into their lives by praying and asking you, Lord, send your Holy Spirit into the lives of our loved ones. Lord, break their strongholds. Break those chains right now in Jesus' name. And, Lord, use us. Use us as the love of Jesus. Use us as the grace of Jesus. Use us to take the gospel, Lord. The gospel changes people. The Holy Spirit of God changes people. Use us, Lord, to bring change in this world. We agree together, Lord. Those strongholds are breaking right now in Jesus' name. We agree together, Father. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to have the Word of God taught to us in our language, to hold it in our hands, and to be able to sit under your teaching, Lord Jesus. Please keep me out of your way. Holy Spirit, please teach us. You're such a better teacher than I am. Lead us into truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 2, I want to invite you to turn there in your scriptures. We are continuing to talk about the ways of Jesus, especially when it comes to relationships. And you know that we have been challenging you to memorize two verses with us over the course of this series out of Psalm chapter 25, verse 4 and 5. And we believe just, just kind of sums up what the Lord is saying to us during this series. And it says this, this was on David's lips as he worshiped the Lord. He said, Lord, show me your ways, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. And that's just a, a, just a powerful prayer of desiring intimacy with the Lord, wanting him to reveal himself to David in a fresh way. David, uh, that just requires so much humility of us even to pray that prayer because this is what we're admitting. My way is not enough. You know, my paths are not enough. I don't set good paths for myself. If I continue to walk in my ways and walk in my paths, I'm going to end up in error. I'm going to end off the, off the road. I'm going to end up in the ditch, whatever it is. So we have to go to the Lord and we have to say, listen, my ways are not working. I need you to show me your ways. My paths have done nothing but cause my feet to be lame. It's caused me to stumble. It's caused me to, to head off in a, a bad direction. I want to I see your paths. Show me your paths. And what I have found, any time that we pray a prayer like that, there's some prayers we wonder, is, is, does that honor the Lord? Is the Lord in that prayer? Listen, the Lord's in that prayer. When we say, show me your ways, the Lord is going to answer that. He wants you to know his ways even more than you want to know his ways. So that can be the prayer of our heart. And the best way to do that, the best way to know God's ways always is through Scripture. Always through Scripture. And the best 
of Scripture is to see the life of Jesus. I want us to understand this. Jesus did not come to the earth just to die on the cross for us. That's the primary reason he came, so that we could be reconciled to God. But I want you to understand, one of the other things that Jesus did by coming and dying for us was living that 33 years on the earth. And that's critical to us. I want you to understand, if God just wanted a sacrifice, he could have sent his son into the world, and he could have had Jesus sacrificed as a child. So why did he leave him those 33 years to walk this earth? Here's why. Because you and I have never had a human model to show us what a life fully surrendered to God is, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking to honor the Father, and advancing the kingdom of God. We've never had that example. Adam and Eve were the only ones that could have set that for us, and how did that go? Not very good. All we've ever seen is this broken example of how to live humanity, this brokenness in the world. Jesus came to show us something different. Here's what it looks like to be a man of God in the power of God doing the work of God. And so when we look at his life, the ways of Jesus are always the ways that we should walk. And we've been honing in and focusing in on specifically how did Jesus walk in relationships? Because as we learn to handle the relationships in our lives as Jesus handled his relationships, then we will see this brokenness that we're experiencing in our families, in our churches, in our politics, in our culture, in our workplaces. We will see the enemy pushed back in those things because we'll be walking into those places in the power and the model of Jesus. So John chapter 2 is where we're going to pick up today, and today we're going to talk about specifically how Jesus entrusted himself to the right people. One of the main ways that Jesus models for us healthy relationship is he learned to entrust himself to the right people. I want to speak to you from my pastor's heart. One of the biggest stumbling blocks I see among people of faith is this, we entrust ourselves to the wrong people. We give our hearts to people who do not treat them well. We want their affection desperately, so we pour out our heart, and instead of someone opening their heart to us and reciprocating that, they stay closed off to us, and then our heart is cut and shredded by that pushback. We want to be liked, and so we do everything we can to please those around us, but we desire to be liked by the wrong people. So we entrust ourselves to people who are not in a, a place of loving us and caring for us as a person, but just wanting to use us for what they can get out of us. We entrust ourselves to people who are not servant-minded, who are not walking with the Lord, who are not thinking about the things of the kingdom, but are pursuing the things of the world. And so in order to have a relationship with them or friendship with them, guess what we have to do? We have to pursue the things of the world too. And it will always leave you broken on the rocks of this world. It will always leave you broken. Always. But we have a better way. And that is learning how to entrust ourselves to the people that Jesus entrusted himself to. Because when that happens, they may make mistakes, they may sin against us, but there will be a reconciliation in their heart and their mind. They'll be loving us, they'll be giving grace to us, we'll be giving grace to them, and there'll be a fullness to the life and the relationships that we have when we interject Jesus into them. So we're going to read a good bit of Scripture this morning, so buckle up, okay? I always think Scripture does a better job of preaching than I do anyway. So let's just give ourselves to the Word of God, John chapter 2. And I want us to look at a couple stories that I think are going to teach us how Jesus entrusted himself to people and who he did not. You ready? 
So John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now, once you understand why this was a big deal, maybe it would not have been a super big deal in our modern times, but weddings were a little bit different back then. Uh, in Jesus' culture and in Jesus' time, weddings could go from somewhere between four and seven days. It took four to seven days for the people in your community to come together, to bless you as a couple, to be able to affirm that this marriage is good and godly, to be able to pray over you and, and bless you as a couple getting started, and to party with you. It took like four to seven days. And one of the big parts of that whole week-long celebration was wine. You enjoyed yourself with people. You ate great meals together with people. And here's one of the big deals. As the father of the bride, you were responsible to provide all the provisions for that whole week. So dad, you think you got it bad now? Try providing for a whole week worth of wedding activities. And as the father of that bride, for you to run out of supplies was a really big deal. In fact, it could have brought shame onto you and your family and onto this new couple right from the get-go that could have followed them not just for the weeks to come, but for a long time to come in that community. So as Mary is at the wedding and as Jesus and his disciples are at the wedding and they're celebrating, Mary figures out from someone that they've run out of wine. Now they haven't broadcast this to everybody, right? Because they don't want anybody to know. So Mary's obviously close to whoever is running the wedding, right? And she goes to Jesus and she says, um, they have no more wine. And look at Jesus' response. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Now I want to make sure you understand when Jesus says woman there, that's an incredibly affectionate term in Aramaic, okay? That's not a derogatory statement in any way. He's saying, this woman who's dear to his heart, he says, listen, why, why are you involving me? My hour is not yet come. You see, to this point in Jesus' ministry, he had not done any miracles. He had come on the scene. John the Baptist had pronounced him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some men had started following him. They were getting a clue of who he was. But he had not yet begun to do miracles that affirmed what he wanted the community to know about him, which was he was God's chosen son, the Messiah, to save the world. That process hasn't started. And what's interesting to me, this is stunning to me, as Jesus arrived at this wedding, he did not think that this wedding was going to be the first place that God was going to do a miracle through him. That's not what's on his mind. He was there to celebrate the wedding, just like his disciples and his mom. But his mother saw something different. This was actually the Mother's Day sermon, okay, for all you moms. Here's, here's your Mother's Day tie-in that I didn't get to last week. You ready? His mother saw something in him that he didn't even see. The Son of God didn't even see. She saw a circumstance, and she saw his ability in God. And so she comes to him to see what God wants to do. So he says, my hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Meaning, I do think your hour has come. And um, just do whatever he says to do. And nearby stood six stone water jars, 
the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. So understand, as you would go to these celebrations to ceremonially and religiously uh, show yourself pure, you would wash your hands, you would wash your feet, maybe even wash your head. And so the stone jars would be out there so this huge crowd of people coming to this celebration could just come in on the way in and wash themselves ceremonially, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to, his ser- said to the servants, fill the jars with water, And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had a little too much to drink, but... You say the best till now. So it kind of pulls back that curtain on, on how those weddings went back in that day, right? You, you, you put out the good wine first, and then after everybody's had a little alcohol, then you bring out the watered-down stuff to save a few bucks, right? But he's like, man, your family's bringing out the good stuff at the end. Because that's what Jesus does when he transforms things. It's not just okay. It's not just mediocre. When Jesus transforms things, they are the best. It's the best of what is there. You know, Jesus wants to transform your marriage, and he doesn't want to make it mediocre. He wants to make it the best. He wants to transform your work habits in your workplace. He doesn't want to make them mediocre. He wants to make them the best. He wants to transform your relationship with your children. He doesn't want it to be status quo or mediocre. He wants it to be the best. That's what Jesus does. When he transforms things, he always makes them the best. He always makes them the best. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheaves and doves and others sitting at a table exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords, and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. If you remember on Good Friday, we talked about this on Palm Sunday before Easter This is what we talked about, Jesus cleansing the temple. He rode triumphantly into the city, and then he cleanses the temple, okay? This is the first time he did that. The one we read just before Easter was the the third time he had come to the temple during his public ministry, and he cleanses the temple both times. The first time coming as his ministry begins, the second time as he ends his ministry just before the crucifixion. But remember what we said about that. There were all of these money changers in the temple that were just taking advantage of people. That travelers would come and they would need an animal to sacrifice because you couldn't travel for hundreds of miles with an animal. So when they got there, they said, sure, here's an animal to sacrifice. It's only 40% more expensive than if you bought it at home. And then they would say things like this. "Um, Your money is too worldly. So as you come here, you actually have to buy temple money that we only sell here in the temple. And it's, um, it's only 40% to your dollar. And, and then you can pay your tithe to the Lord, but only with temple money. Does that sound like exploitation? Yeah. 
And it bothered Jesus. So when he saw these things two different times, he comes into the temple and he cleanses the temple as he does those things. And we know that the people loved it. The people loved it because they didn't like being exploited. And now someone's doing something about it. And they're thinking, man, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one that's coming to cleanse the temple. Maybe he's the one who's going to overthrow Rome. They're excited for what he's doing. So look at verse 19. I'm sorry, 18. The Jews then responded to him. These are the leaders. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again on three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? The temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in him. How many people? A few people? Many people. Saw what Jesus was doing in the temple, and they believed in him. Verse 24 and 25. Please underline this because it's just going to be critical. These are the two verses we're going to pivot on today. Verse 24 and 25. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. And he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So when this crowd was all excited because Jesus is flipping tables and driving out the religious leaders, this huge crowd of people says, this may be the Messiah, and they believed in him. They wanted him to be a Messiah, but not the Messiah that they wanted. They believed that he would be a Messiah that would overthrow Rome, that would overthrow the leadership in Jerusalem. That's what they wanted, but that's not what Jesus came to do. So they're all excited about him being the wrong kind of Messiah. And this is what it says, Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. He knew all men. And I want you to understand that there are times in Scripture where it's clear that Jesus will sit down with people and he will know the secrets of their heart. Like a couple chapters later, remember the woman at the well? You remember that? where Jesus is talking with her, and all of a sudden he says, uh, go call your husband and come back and, and let's talk. And she says, I'm not married. He says, you're right. You've been married five times, and the man you're with is not your husband. He knew the secrets of her heart, but I don't think that's what was going on here. I think this is Jesus understanding human nature. He understood what was in a person, and so he was careful who he entrusted himself to. Now, Jesus was not this guarded person who never entrusted himself to anybody. The proof of that is the beginning of this chapter. He obviously entrusted himself to his mother, and God worked through her, through him, for his first miracle, right? So how can you and I understand who we can entrust ourselves to and who we cannot? Isn't that the key? I mean, that's what we want in relationship. We want to know what pleases the Lord when it comes to entrusting ourselves to people. There are some things I think we can see here. But as I talk about what it means to entrust ourselves to someone, I want to make sure that you understand that. So I just wrote a few things down in your bulletin there. You know, when Jesus entrusted himself, this is what I mean. Jesus had a way of giving himself to people without linking his identity and his purpose to people. Jesus had a way of serving people and praying for people, of ministering to people, of going among people who did not walk with the Lord, didn't know the Lord, going among religious people. But Jesus had this way of being with people, but not linking his identity or his purpose to people. And we struggle with that. 
We do. I do. I struggle with that, and all of us struggle with that. We look to other people to establish our identity and our purpose. And I want you to understand how this begins for us. God actually created you and I in the garden all the way back, Adam and Eve. He created human beings to find their identity and their purpose outside of them. You know why he did that? So that we would find our identity and our purpose in him. In fact, we understand this intuitively. When we encounter someone day in and day out whose identity and purpose is wrapped up in themselves, people like that repulse us. Like we, we don't like arrogant people. We don't like people who are wrapped up in themselves. We, and, and we can't really put our finger on it, but we just don't want to be around people like that. We enjoy being around people who are other-centered and who think of others and who put others first and things like that. And that's because we're wired to find our purpose and our identity outside of us and ultimately so we can find it in God. Jesus could give himself to people without needing to get his identity and purpose from them. And the second thing was this. Jesus had a way of loving and serving people while still guarding his heart against the sinful influence of the people around him. It is amazing to me when you read the Gospels that Jesus gets accused of a bunch of things. The, the religious leader said things like this. Uh, he's a drunkard. You know why they accused him of being a drunkard? Because he hung around with people who drank. They accused him of being a friend of sinners and of prostitutes and tax collectors, which were the, the bottom rung on the ladder in Jesus' culture, tax collectors, prostitutes. And you know why they accused him of that? Because he actually spent time with them. But there's this ability that Jesus has to love and to serve people and never be influenced by the sinfulness of people around him. See, he had this way of giving himself to people that didn't transform who he was, but transformed who they were. Isn't that the goal for our life? Isn't that the vision we want? To be able to walk into any circumstance, any situation, and transform that room for the Lord, rather than be transformed by that room. Uh, we, we did Myra Tong's funeral yesterday. And as I talk with people, here's one of the consistent themes I heard about Myra. When Myra walked into a room, people encountered the Lord. Whether it was in an ESL class, whether it was on the street, at a restaurant, or whatever, she brought the Lord into that room because he was so real in her life. That when you left Myra's presence, you felt like you had been in the Lord's presence, whether you were in a Sunday school class or whether you were on the street. That's the kind of person she was, and that's the call of Jesus on our life. That's the call of Jesus, that we can interact with people and transform them and not be transformed by them. So if we want to learn how to entrust ourselves to the right people, let's look at what Jesus did, okay? Number one, Jesus entrusted himself to the person who knew him, not to the people who thought they knew him. You look at this story. When Mary comes and says, they're out of wine. And he says, it's not my time yet. She says, do whatever he says. He entrusted himself to Mary. Why? Because she knew him. She knew him and he knew that he knew her. And he refused to entrust himself to people who did not know him. 
And so when the crowds gathered around him and said, hey, you're awesome. Thanks for flipping those tables. We'll follow you anywhere. Jesus is like, no thanks. No thanks. Because they didn't know him. So uh, if you're between 12 and 25, let me have your attention for just a minute because Uncle Walton wants to talk to you a little bit. Let me just speak into your life. You are in this amazing stage of development where you are trying to find who you are on your own apart from your family. And so from about 12 to 25, that's like one of the main focuses of your life. Who am I? I'm not just Janet Cruz's son. I'm not just, you know, Gloria Helton's daughter. I, who am I on my own? And, and that's why parents, you know this, but that, that's why you butt heads about uh, why, are you, why is your hair blue? Or, you know, why are you wearing shorts? It's, it's 15 degrees outside and there's snow on the ground. Why are you wearing shorts? It, it's because they're just, they're learning to, to be someone apart from you. And I want you to understand, that's an incredibly healthy thing for you to do. But here is where we fall into trouble. When we fall into trouble is in our quest to understand who we are apart from our family. We begin to entrust ourselves to people who don't know us. And we begin to push away from people who do. And because of that, we end up giving the best of who we are to people who do not treasure it. Rather than remaining close and connected to the people who have invested in you for years. And I have 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds in this room that will tell you they made that mistake. They learned the hard way. So I'll give you some advice. Some of you are graduating up here today and, and not graduate from college yet. You graduate, you're going off into the world, you're going into the workplace, maybe the military, whatever else it is, college. I just want to say something to you. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how do we help young people continue to walk with Jesus once they leave a youth group and once they leave children's church and Sunday school. There's a lot of talk about that. The number one thing is they need to understand how to walk, Jesus, walk with Jesus on their own. Absolutely, that's the number one thing. Being in the Word, learning how to pray, learning how to serve the Lord in different ways, that's obviously number one. But let me tell you the thing, in 13 years as a pastor at this church, as a minister, as a youth minister, and as a pastor, here's what I have observed and I found to be true. The number two thing that will determine your success in walking with the Lord once you leave your house is whether or not you will stay connected to your family, to your siblings, and to the people who have invested in you in the Lord. I know when you head off in that dorm room and you got 50 other options on your own, you don't want to call your mama. Listen to me. Call your mama. Call your mama. She will really appreciate it. But you will too. Stay connected to people who know you the best. Call your siblings. My sister and I fought like cats and dogs. She's probably watching this right now. It was all your fault. But... We fought like cats and dogs. Let me tell you when we got close. We got close when she was in college and I was in college. And she made it a point to connect with me and stay connected with me. She invited me to spend time with her. I met her friends. We got together. That's where we reconnected. It's my most valuable relationship apart from my marriage right now. My sister. We don't see eye to eye on everything. But I love her. I'm so glad she's part of my life. I chose to stay connected with her. I chose to stay connected with my friends from church, with my youth ministers, other ministry people who had influenced me and spoken to my life. 
You know, one of the greatest joys for me, again, from being here 13 years as a pastor and as a youth minister, is when I still get texts from seventh graders who were in my youth group and now are married. They're married now. And they're just checking in and they're talking about what Jesus is doing in their life. And they ask me what Jesus is doing in my life. And I can't tell you, that's the win. I mean, that is the win. I love it. I love it. I love it. Stay connected to the people who know you. Give yourself to people who don't know you. Invest in them and minister to them and show them grace, but you can't entrust yourself to them because they have not proven themselves to be what your family and your close friends and your church community has proven to be for you. Number two, what did Jesus do? And entrusting himself with people. Number two, he entrusted himself to the person who was committed to God's plan and not their plan. You know, Mary does not ask Jesus about wine because she's going to undergo shame. She asked Jesus about wine because somebody else was going to undergo shame. And she wanted to make sure that she was cared, that they were cared for. He entrusted himself to the person who was committed to God's plan and not to the plans of others. Mary was not there to manipulate people. She wasn't there to use Jesus for what he could give her. She loved him. And we've read in the Gospels, Luke, Matthew, we've read it over and over again. Mary sacrificed to bring Jesus into the world. It was no cakewalk. She trusted God. She believed God. She literally risked her life multiple times so that Jesus could come in to this world. She was all in on what God wanted to do, and Jesus knew that. He grew up with her. He had seen her show him that again and again. You know, it's interesting. We don't know what happened to Joseph. Like, Joseph is out of the picture in the gospel after chapter 12, or after Jesus is 12 years old. When he's in the temple as a young man, that's all we see of Joseph. We don't know if he died. We don't know what happened. But this is what he know. We know Mary continued to pour into him all that time. She was committed to God's plan, not her own plan. Including when he said things like this. Um, I'm going to go start gathering disciples and I'm going to go travel around. Even though he was the oldest son, whose responsibility would have been to care for his mother and his family. With no Joseph around. But what does she do? I, I trust you. I trust you. God has his plan. I believe in what God's doing. Jesus entrusted himself to someone who had entrusted themselves to God's plan. You'll never go wrong with that. You'll never go wrong trusting yourself to other people who are as committed to Jesus' plan as you are. One of the biggest blessings my mom ever gave me was when I graduated college, I wanted to go to India. And they were not jazzed about me traveling that far away on my own at that stage of my life. And my mom told me that. But my mom walked with Jesus, and one of the best things she ever said was, I trust you to hear from the Lord, and I trust Jesus to take care of you. It's a godly woman. It wasn't easy when I got on that plane. She cried all the way to the terminal. That's back when you could go to the terminal and you could put people on planes. She cried all the way to the terminal, and she probably crawled all the way home. But Jesus took care of that, and he took care of her too. Now she goes to the Ukraine every year. You know the Ukraine that butts right up against Russia. 
you know, that country where they shoot down passenger planes with Russian rockets. You know, that place. And you know what I have to do? I have to say, Mom, you know, they're shooting down planes now, uh, like in Ukraine. And she's like, yeah, and Jesus would like me to go there. And you know what I have to do? Listen, I trust you to hear from the Lord, and I trust Jesus to take care of you. Number three, he entrusted himself to the person who was looking out for others, not looking out for themselves. Mary was concerned about that family, not about her. She wasn't looking out for her. She wasn't trying to get something out of Jesus for her. She was watching out for that family. That's a good telltale sign about who healthy people are. When they are other-centered, they tend to be healthy people. When they're self-centered, they tend to need growth. You have to be careful. You give yourself to those folks. And number four, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who wanted him for who he was, not for what they wanted him to be. Young people, this is for you too. Listen to me. Mary wanted Jesus for who he was, for God's miracle, for God to do through him everything that he wanted to do. Mary did not understand who Jesus was any more than the disciples or anyone else, but she hung around. She stuck there even when his brothers did not believe in him. At the crucifixion, who was at the foot of the cross? Mary was at the foot of the cross. After the resurrection, who was up in the upper room praying with his disciples? Mary was. On the day of Pentecost, who was there? Mary was there. She stuck with Jesus even when she didn't understand the plan. She wanted him for who God wanted him to be, not for who she wanted him to be. Those people in that crowd that day, they wanted him to be a Messiah they didn't even understand. The one they thought that they needed. They didn't even understand they need to be delivered from their sin even more. Please, young people, listen. Entrust yourself to people who love you and accept you for who you are, not for who they want you to be. Because if you give yourself to people like that, you will always be striving to please somebody else and to conform to somebody else's standard instead of Jesus. And it will cripple you. It will cripple you. Trust yourself to people who accept who you are in the Lord. So last verse out of Psalm 25, 14. This is such a rich psalm. If you've not read this psalm, you need to go read this psalm. This psalm is amazing. Psalm 25, 14. This is what David says. He says, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. I want you to get this. Not only does God call us to entrust ourselves to the right people, but he calls us to be people he can entrust himself to. The Lord confides in those who fear him, meaning he reveals his plan, he reveals his character, he reveals his power to people who fear him. He entrusts himself to people who know him deeply and who have intimate relationship with him. That's the goal. Not only to give ourselves to healthy people, but to be the kind of people that God can entrust himself to and that other people can as well. So as we close today, our praise team is going to come. This is an opportunity for just to search our hearts and ask ourselves hard questions like this. Are we entrusting ourselves right now to the wrong people? Are there friendships we need 
to evaluate and ask ourselves, are they taking me in a direction that's going to help me? Or are they taking me in a direction that, helps, that hurts me? And listen, I'm not just talking to 15-year-olds. I'm talking to 50-year-olds. Sometimes we give ourselves to the wrong people. And their influence cripples us. We need to ask for the heart of Jesus to be able to move in.